Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm happy to say we have Elaine Tyler May on the show, and we'll be talking about her new book, America and the Pill, A History of Promise, Peril, and Liberation. The people who promoted and designed the birth control pill believed that it would solve many of humanity's problems. The most important that they had in mind were, uh, first, overpopulation, which was quite a concern at the time, and second, at least among proto-feminists or feminists, the oppression of women. As Elaine points out in this really interesting book, it didn't accomplish either of these goals, really. The population of the world continues to grow, uh, I would say at alarming rates, and women are still second-class citizens over much of the globe. But the pill did do a lot of things. It put fertility into the hands of women for the first time in world history. And that is something. Women could control their own childbearing, independently of men and any other sort of political or religious forces. And it also stood for women's liberation in general. It became a powerful symbol of the liberation movement. And that, too, was important. Anyway, I learned a lot from this book, and I think you'll enjoy the interview. So, without further delay, here it is. Hi, Elaine. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm good. Thank good. you. I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that. We're talking to Elaine Tyler May today, and we'll be discussing her uh, terrific new book, America and the Pill, A History of Promise, Peril, and Liberation. Uh, I read the book. It, it's terrific. It's, it's, a real, it's a kind of a page-turner for those of you interested in sort of modern cultural history and the history of um, in gender history. Uh, there's also an interesting uh, personal connection between the author and the story, and we'll come to that in a second. But, um, Elaine, why don't you begin by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, uh, I was born and raised in Los Angeles, and um went to school there through the public school system and the University of California system, and uh, I have now been at the University of Minnesota for the last, oh, 30-some years, since 1978. And um, I got interested, actually, in American history, interestingly enough, when I was um, studying abroad for my junior year. I spent that year in Japan. That was uh, 1967-68. Uh, a year, as pretty much everyone knows, was uh, a year of turmoil, both in the United States and around the world. And it really made me very conscious, living in Asia during that year, of uh, what it meant to be an American and the role of the U.S. in the world. And when I went home, um, I continued my studies but found myself taking a lot more U.S. history than I had in the past. And uh, not uh, Asian or Japanese history, as I thought I might. Um, and uh, that sort of landed me in the field that became my life work. And, of course, I also um, grew up in the era of uh, the second wave of feminism, which was very important in my life as well. And so uh, all of the, the issues that were flooding into the field of history at the time 
um, no longer known as the new host, the new social history, but that's what it was known as at the time, uh, learning about people whose stories had never really been included in traditional historical scholarship in the past, uh, black people, history of slavery, the uh, history of working people, immigrants, women, um, sexual minorities, all of that emerged during the years that I was first studying uh, U.S. history. So uh, that really influenced the kind of work I went on uh, to do in, in my own life. Mm-hmm. And were the, would you say those were the early years of, uh, do we call it women's history anymore? I don't know. What do we call it now? Uh, well, it was the early years of women's history for sure, and it was a very exciting time to be doing women's history. Um, and uh, the scholars who were doing it were really creating the field as they went along because there weren't a lot of, of role models and there wasn't a lot of scholarship. There were a few classic works, but um, but the field itself developed um, pretty rapidly considering how new it was at the time. It just really began to attract a lot of uh, amazing um, original and innovative scholars who uh, very quickly moved beyond the kind of um, add women and stir <laughs> um, uh, notion of history that we used to think of where you'd say, oh, yes, and, you know, there were women who were doing that, too, or there were women who were important who you never knew about before. Uh-huh. And very quickly it turned into how different does history look when you begin to include the history of women and women's agency in making history. And then the big picture itself began to change. And uh, that was very exciting. And then new theoretical directions emerged where, um, you know, it wasn't just a matter of including women or telling women's stories, but really using gender profoundly as a category of historical analysis. And uh, that meant that you now began to look at history with uh, with an eye toward, for example, masculinity or the fact that men did things not just as human beings but as men and women did things as women uh, and started examining the impact of gender expectations, gender roles, that kind of thing on both men and women. And then from there, of course, the field uh, expanded even further to include sexuality, gay and lesbian history, um, history of the family, of course, was was part of this, the, the notion that the history is that, that the family itself has a history. It's not simply an uh, unchanging universal institution, but uh, deeply embedded in um, other historical transformations. So uh, the field has really changed and expanded quite a bit. Women's history today is much more attentive to broader theoretical issues of gender and sexuality than it was in the very beginning. Um, still very much, I think, the outgrowth of feminist consciousness and feminist theory. And, uh, you know, it, the, the field changes and evolves as we speak. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, it's funny you mentioned uh, gender as a tool or concept in historical analysis because I was just reading that classic Joan Scott article in another connection right. yesterday. Right. Yeah, I, I literally was just going through it again. And huh. I, I guess I came out in 84, 85, I can't really remember. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, things were pretty fresh then. You can, you read it That's now. Right. And now, you know, I mean, in graduate education, it's a sort of standard part right, of the exactly. curriculum. Uh, yeah. but, then, but then it was not. Uh, no, I, that was a very influential and important article yeah. that she wrote. Yeah. So tell us how you came to uh, write this book about the pill. Well, 
Well, there were a number of, uh, of forces, really, that, that came together. Uh, I've always been interested in the intersection of politics and private life, uh, looking at issues of sexuality, the family, gender, women's history, and how those issues, transformations, developments, are part of a larger story that we often think of as political history or, um, you know, history of public life. And so all of my work has, has really focused on that intersection of public and private life. Uh, my dissertation, which became my first book, uh, looked at changes in marriage and divorce around the turn of the 20th century, uh, looking really at large changes such as urbanization and immigration and progressive reform um, and changing gender roles and expectations for men and women and the women's movement at the time and how all of that had an impact on uh, what men and women expected in their marriages, how they looked to each other and to their relationship to uh, satisfy certain um, new concepts of happiness, for example, or family or, or marriage or sex or whatever it was, and consumerism and all of these issues really were involved um, in, uh, in expectations for marriage and, and, of course, also why marriages fell apart. So I used that issue as a lens into broader social changes taking place. I went from that project, leaping forward in time, to the baby boom era right after World War II, trying to figure out what would prompt this huge rush into family after World War II and uh, uh, what would prompt um, something like this domestic, uh, strong domestic ideology with very polarized and rigid gender roles um, after really decades of gender upheaval, both in the 30s because of the Depression and then the war years. And... Um, and so I went into that uh, project with that question, what, what explains this? And uh, very quickly it became clear that the Cold War had a lot to do with this, uh, a connection that I hadn't seen before and other scholars looking at this hadn't really noticed, and suddenly I found it everywhere. So um, the connection between the Cold War and domestic ideology uh, was the, the focus of that next project. Uh, I went from there and I did a, a project on really on, on the history of reproduction, looking at uh, childless people, childless people who were who had no children either because of infertility or because they chose to have no children or or in some cases because they were um, forcibly sterilized against their will. And uh, that was a very interesting project too because Mike family history or the history of sexuality or gender, reproduction is also something that is very culturally and socially constructed so that there are different points in time when having children is a very strong social ideal as it was after World War II during the baby boom era and times when it seems to be less so in terms of a marker of adulthood and maturity. Uh, so coming to the birth control pill, as the 50th anniversary of the FDA approval approached, it seemed to me a really good time to take a look at what the pill has meant over its 50 years since it's been on the market. And it appealed to me as a scholar because the pill is a perfect place to look at those connections between public policy, politics, and uh, private life and intimacy and sexuality. These were issues that I looked at in all of my work, and this seemed like an interesting moment in time and a, and a wonderful lens to, to use the pill. Uh, 
In addition to those scholarly interests, I also had a very deep personal connection to the story because both of my parents, especially my father, um, they were both involved in the uh, in the research and the um, arrival of the birth control pill. My father was one of the clinical researchers who was involved in the study uh, and the um, research that led to the pill. And my mother was a birth control pioneer in her own right. She and my father together founded some um, birth control family planning and Planned Parenthood clinics in Los Angeles. And uh, my my mother would, would work in the more administrative uh, an organizational capacity and my father in the medical capacity. And as it turned out, during the course of my research, I discovered something about my father's role in the arrival of the pill that I had never known before. I was 12 years old when the <laughs> pill arrived on the market in 1960. I certainly remember it with a lot of um, excitement. It was a very big moment for my father and for all of us. But uh, I didn't know at the time, and I only found out um, while I was working on this book, that my father actually was a very important key player in the approval process itself. And that was very exciting to discover. Um, my father, unfortunately, died young he, in, in 1975, and my mother died about 10 years ago. So they, they weren't around for me to, uh, unfortunately, to consult over the book or to uh, run back to them and say, my gosh, I never knew about this. Tell me. Um, but other scholars had uh, discovered this, and uh, I stumbled across it. So that was that was a really um, eventful moment for me in this research. Yeah. I imagine it was exciting. Let's actually Very launch exciting. into a, uh, a, a discussion of the, the, the book itself. And uh, I would like to begin uh, by talking a little bit about uh, contraceptives that were available prior to the pill. Um, maybe you could just talk a little bit about those, because I think one of the things your book points out is that although we think of the pill as uh, revolutionary, there were other methods available. Oh, yes. Well, there's probably always been methods available of one form or another to varying degrees of uh, effectiveness. Uh, but immediately prior to the pill, uh, the two most important and effective uh, forms of contraception were the condom for men and the diaphragm for women. And they were both very widely used. And by and large, pretty effective. Uh, not as effective as the pill, but they were definitely effective and available, and they were widely used. So what made the pill revolutionary was the fact that, well, there were several things. First of all, it was more effective if, if used appropriately and properly every day, if taken every day. The pill was almost 100% effective, so it, it had a higher success rate in preventing pregnancy. Secondly, of course, it separated uh, the act of sex from uh, the act of contraception, and uh, there had never been a contraceptive device that had done that before. So that was a, a big change. Um, one could have sex without, at that time, dealing with uh, contraceptive technology. And thirdly, and in many ways uh, most important for women, was it was something that was totally in the control of women, mm -hmm. where their partners didn't have to cooperate, they didn't have to uh, approve, they didn't even necessarily have to know about it. So those were the three things that made the pill truly revolutionary and different than the available contraceptives mm -hmm. uh, before. Mm -hmm. So most people know 
that the Catholic Church today is uh, not particularly in favor of contraception, but this anti-contraception opinion was much more widespread in the first part of the 20th century, wasn't it? And, and who opposed it? And, and I remember actually hearing that even in your book that you say Massachusetts banned dissemination of information about it completely? Oh, yes. Well, if we go all the way back to the late 19th century, um, there was a notorious vice crusader by the name of Anthony Comstock um, who became an official in the Postal Department. And um, he eventually campaigned for and uh, achieved the, the success of a, of a congressional law uh, that was named after him, the Comstock Law, mm-hmm. uh, which included any information or devices uh, for contraceptives or abortions, um, defined them as uh, obscene, and um, prohibited them from being uh, sent in the U.S. mails. So the Comstock Law pretty much uh, put to an end the possibility of uh, mailing contraceptive information or materials. And in, in those days, that was the way people communicated. Mm-hmm. You know, it was um, it, it was a very uh, drastic law. And uh, by the 1930s, Margaret Sanger and other um, birth control advocates had managed to get an exemption for doctors who were prescribing um, contraception, in, in uh, you know, as a health benefit. So that kind of lifted the lid a little bit, uh, but. But even in 1960, when the birth control pill was approved, 22 states prohibited contraception altogether. Massachusetts was only one Mm -hmm. of 22 states. The Supreme Court didn't lift that ban until 1965, and then only for married couples. And it wasn't until 1972, largely because of feminist and other political pressure, that that uh, right was extended to unmarried people. So, um, so yes, there was a feeling that the um, the whole issue was unseemly, uh, somehow immoral or dis- disreputable. Um, in the 50s, when research was um, just uh, getting uh, gaining momentum, um, there was no one to fund it. The the uh, pharmaceutical companies were afraid of it. They thought they might be boycotted by the Catholic Church or others who thought it was not. Um, Proper, um, Dwight Eisenhower, the president, said, "You know, there's no way that the federal government or any of its agencies will get involved in this business of birth control. This is not our business." Um, foundations wouldn't support it. Uh, nobody would support it, and with the exception of Margaret Sanger and her feminist friend uh, Catherine McCormick, a, a very wealthy widow who pretty much single-handedly bankrolled the uh, the early research. Uh, so there, there were a lot of forces but besides the Catholic Church that were not um, friendly towards contraception. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, um, the Catholic Church was not always so vehemently opposed to it. In the 1960s, the Church came very close to changing its mind. In fact, a, a majority of a commission um, that was appointed by the Pope at the time uh, spent three years studying the issue and... Uh, the vast majority of uh, those um, leaders of the church, including uh, as well with support from lay, uh, lay leaders as well as, as priests across the country and across the world, um, were advocating that the uh, ban be lifted, and the commission itself voted to lift the ban. 
but a very small coterie of very powerful conservative cardinals persuaded the Pope not to do it. So even at a time when it, it looked like the Catholic Church was about to um, lift the ban, uh, conservative forces prevailed. Um, on the other hand, that didn't stop Catholic women from taking the pill uh, very quickly. Catholic women were taking the pill at the same rate as non-Catholic women. So it's, it says a lot about what, you know, both about the history of, of the Church's position on this issue and also the relationship between lay Catholics and the Catholic leadership. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. Um, one of the interesting things, Interesting things in, the, in, in your telling of the story is the credit that you give, and you just mentioned them, um, Catherine McCormick and, and um, Margaret Sanger. And uh, Sanger is actually one of the most fascinating figures I've ever encountered. Everything I've ever read about her kind of makes me scratch my head because she, she was a person of real, really, she, she was a person of her own time. I mean, she held thoughts in her head together that we can't hold anymore. Like, for example, she was very pro-women's rights, but she also liked eugenics. These are, these are not ideas we can easily put together. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about her. Yeah, she's a very interesting character. And the eugenics movement is also very interesting because it, it brought together a lot of people who were not uh, people you could necessarily think were political allies on any issue. Um, for example, there were reformers like, very radical reformers like Emma Goldman and Margaret Sanger and others who, for a variety of reasons, were in favor of certain kinds of eugenic reforms, especially those that would um, encourage women to have healthier babies, mm-hmm. for example, and uh, fewer babies so that they uh, would maintain their own health and their children's health. Uh, people like W.E.B. Du Bois, um, the great uh, African-American civil rights leader, uh, he also believed in, in certain kinds of eugenic principles, which is to say, um, you know, making making it possible for poor people to have fewer children, so they could also so they could be healthier and uh, and that their parents could afford to raise them properly and all of that. So there was a there was a distance between those more radical uh, and progressive thinkers who believed in a certain kind of what we might call positive eugenics, and on the other extreme, uh, those who were advocating uh, laws to force uh, compulsory sterilization on people who didn't want it. Mm-hmm. Um, and those those people could all be called um, proponents of eugenics in one way or another, but they didn't necessarily agree on how and when and under what circumstances um, you know, principles of, of um, I guess you could say, reproductive control should be employed. Mm-hmm. Now, that aside, uh, the interesting thing I think about Margaret Sanger is that she was both a visionary and an idealist, as well as a very pragmatic and strategic political thinker. Mm-hmm. And she did change her um, perspective over the years depending on what she felt her movement needed. She was single-mindedly in favor of birth control. And whatever would help her promote that cause, she would do. Now, in the beginning, she, like Catherine McCormick, Emma Goldman, many other radicals, they were all part of a radical circle of um, socialist feminists, uh, women's rights leaders, 
um, progressive thinkers during the early 20th century in the progressive era. And um, birth control was very much a part of that. For Margaret Sanger, it was, uh, she was very passionately devoted to this cause, both because she had been born into a um, very devout Catholic family. Her parents were devout Catholics. Her mother had 13 pregnancies and 11 live children, and she died at the age of 50. And Margaret Sanger believed this is because she was just completely worn out by too many uh, children, having too many children. Mm -hmm. And she also became a nurse. And as a nurse, she was working in very poor neighborhoods in New York, and um, she was seeing over and over again women who were becoming sick and dying either from complications of childbirth or from um, botched abortions. Uh, these were women who desperately couldn't afford to have more children and um, gave up their health and often their lives as a result. So she came by this passion through both her own upbringing in her family and through her work as a nurse. And her radical vision, over time, she would compromise it when she felt she had to or when she thought it would help the cause. So, for example, um, very quickly she realized that if she could get the medical profession on her side, it would do a lot to promote the cause. So she began to align herself with doctors who would help her in her clinics and it was eventually that alliance that, that made it possible for her to keep clinics open and to provide birth control because the laws would change. And here we get this example that I just mentioned about the uh, Comstock law. Doctors saying, you know, I need to be able to give my patients what I think they need to protect their health and their lives. And so it would be the stature of the medical profession and the advocacy of doctors who made it possible for her to create a kind of respectability around what was earlier seen as a radical feminist um, issue, birth control. So she brought birth control into respectability. On the other hand, she always carried a kind of radical edge. Uh, during the 1940s, uh, the early 1940s, there was a... Um, an effort to change the tone of the movement from birth control, which had a very radical and feminist connotation, to Planned Parenthood, uh, which, uh, of course, uh, is grounded in notions of family planning and, and uh, professionalism and social order. And uh, she opposed the change, but she was outvoted. And it was, I think, in 1943 or 44 that the Birth Control Federation of America changed its name to Planned Parenthood Federation of, of America. She was still the head of it, but she was not happy about the change. In terms of um, her eugenic advocacy, uh, again, uh, this was largely a uh, – she said some pretty stupid things. There are quotes of Margaret Sanger's that are really um, pretty – uh, extreme. On the other hand, um, she was never a racist. And one of the quotes that's attributed to Margaret Sanger that she actually did say in a public setting um, has been attached to her name. But interestingly enough, the words that she spoke, she was quoting W.E.B. E. Du Bois, mm -hmm. the black civil rights leader. And he was saying, you know, there are a lot of ignorant black people in the South who need to have access to birth control because they can't really afford to have uh, these huge families. Mm -hmm. And that would be very consistent with um, Du Bois, who, uh, who would be concerned about 
the um, these poor ignorant families, and that was his word, ignorant, because they were uneducated, they were poor, and uh, and they were suffering from uh, lack of access to birth control. Mm-hmm. So she would go places and quote Du Bois, and then these words would be attributed to her, and she would be labeled a racist. Mm-hmm. So you know. Um, she's become kind of a punching bag for, uh, I think, a lot of um, a lot of people who who want to use her for political purposes mm-hmm. and denigrate her. Uh, not that I think everything she did was necessarily um, noble and fine. <laughs> you know, she she was a fighter. She was feisty. She was uh, politically shrewd, and she did what she thought she needed to do to get her. Um, to get her cause promoted. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just find her a fascinating figure. I find anybody who, who can hold these ideas in their head together, I mean, she obviously was a very intelligent person, and uh, it clearly bespeaks a kind of different mentality than we have today. Definitely. And that's the fascination in it, for me at least. Yes, yeah, she was a fascinating character and a, an important historical figure and interesting in so many ways. Um, she and McCormick both lived until the mid-60s, so they saw their dream come to reality uh, before they died, uh, and they did make it happen. And whatever you may think of uh, Margaret Sanger, and she is a complicated figure, um, she left an important legacy. Yeah, complicated. That's the way people come. <laughs> I right. don't, I, I've right. not met any really simple ones. Um, right. tell, yes. us, tell us a little bit about um, Catherine McCormick. I'd never heard of her before I read your book. Yeah, she was an amazing woman, and uh, a lot of people have heard of um, Margaret Sanger, but not Catherine McCormick. She was um, she came from a very prominent family, and uh, in the late 19th century, uh, she was one of the first women to graduate from MIT. She actually graduated in 1902 with a degree in uh, biology. And um, she was also a very strong feminist and very much a part of the women's movement at the time. Shortly after she graduated from from college, uh, she married Stanley McCormick, who was the son of the founder of the International Harvester Company. And so she married, she already came from a wealthy family, but she married into a um, very extremely wealthy family. And her husband, uh, very soon after their marriage, was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Mm. So uh, Catherine McCormick began working very hard to support research into mental illness and schizophrenia, and she put a lot of the family fortune into that effort. And uh, she was, uh, at the same time, she was an active women's rights um, um, activist, and she worked for the vote and other causes for the feminist movement. Uh, and this went on for decades. And when her husband finally died, um, she came to her friend Margaret Sanger. They had known each other and worked together since the 19, early 19, 1900s. And she said, well, you know, I've done what I can for mental health research. And now let's just make this birth control pill happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the two of them teamed up, and they were the ones who found uh, Gregory Pincus, who was the Massachusetts scientist, another very interesting character. Uh, And uh, McCormick was still very knowledgeable about science and biology, and she very carefully went through his lab and looked at his work, and she was pleased with what she saw. So they 
got him on board, and he was interested in pursuing this research. And uh, so he did the lab work, and then together they found um, John Rock, who is also um, considered one of the major developers of the pill, to do the early human trials. Mm-hmm. So uh, they really launched the research that led to the pill. Mm-hmm. In an interesting twist, uh, Rock and Pincus, if I recall correctly, were working on infertility. Yes, and you know most of the physicians at the time, including my father, were working on infertility as well as contraception. This was a time, it's interesting, this is the baby boom era. The field of reproductive medicine was expanding very dramatically. My father was an endocrinologist, so he came at it through the... Um, uh, through the angle of the hormonal system, um, the endocrine system, not through OBGYN. Uh, other doctors were OBGYN doctors. And uh, obviously, if you're going to be doing research on infertility, you're, you're working with uh, the processes of, of the reproductive systems. So, um, so the doctors and scientists who were involved would be working on both sides of the coin, both the infertility side and the um, contraceptive side. And they didn't see this at all as a contradiction. In, in fact, I can remember very well my father, uh, both both of my parents, but especially my father in terms of this issue of his medical work, he would say, you know, um, we believe that science and medicine should make it possible for anyone to have the number of children that they want when they want them. Mm-hmm. So the people who want them should have them. The people who don't want them should be able to prevent it or delay it or whatever, but the idea here was the, the mantra I heard growing up, every child a wanted child. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was the consistent um, kind of overarching philosophical position that motivated people like my father. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it really didn't take these researchers very long to uh, design a drug that uh, did pretty much what the modern pill does. But then, as you say, they had to test it, and that was a kind of a interesting challenge. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yes, this is such an interesting story because it was in the mid-1950s, really, that the pill was approved for market, but not for contraception. It was first, the same compound, basically the same compound, was, was approved for infertility. And it was largely John Rock, in, in fact, this, this particular use was, was named for him. They called it the Rock Rebound, which is... He would give his patients the pill for a short period of time. It would suppress ovulation. And the idea was that um, suppressing ovulation would give the woman's system a break, a rest, and then take away the pill and their um, reproductive system uh, would snap back into gear. So their ovaries would then be uh, rejuvenated and would begin to, uh, to ovulate, to produce eggs. Uh, in a regular way, in a, you know, through the woman's cycle. And they called this the Rock Rebound, and the FDA approved the pill for that purpose. Now, there were two things that happened after that that were interesting. First thing that happened was almost immediately half a million women showed up at their doctors demanding this <laughs> pill uh, for so-called menstrual irregularity, a, a condition that had never really been uh, diagnosed or treated in the past. Uh, but women knew that a pill that suppressed ovulation was going to prevent them from getting pregnant. And doctors, of course, knew this too. So there was a certain wink-wink going on, but suddenly you had, you know, half a million women really taking this medication for birth control, even though what it was approved for was for infertility treatment. Now, of course, the difference is 
the amount of time for women to be taking the pill. And that is where the research really hadn't been done. It's one thing to take massive doses of hormones for a short period of time to stimulate the ovaries. Uh, and it's another to take it for years and years at a time to prevent pregnancy. So the research hadn't been done for long-term use. Everyone knew it was effective, um, but would it be safe? And that's why they needed to do the longer-term trials before the the pill could be marketed for contraception. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and here we have uh, another moment uh, in which we can see that uh, today is very different than yesterday. Because uh, how did they actually go about gathering the subjects to do this, at least in the United States? I know it was different overseas. Well, it wasn't really that different. Um, the big problem in the U.S. was uh, the laws. You know, there were... There were places where, for example, John Rock couldn't do this research. He would have been arrested and sent to jail if he did it in Massachusetts with his own patients. Mm -hmm. So they had to find places where it was legal. And the other thing is they couldn't, they couldn't test lower doses of the pill uh, because they knew that the high dose, the 10-milligram pill, actually prevented pregnancy. And at the time, if they had experimented with lower-dose pills, they couldn't say to a woman who volunteered for the study, look, you know, we're going to try this. It's a lower dose. We're not absolutely sure that this is going to prevent pregnancy, but don't worry. Uh, if you get pregnant, we'll know within a day or two, and, you know, we'll be able to take care of it. I mean, this is pre-Roe v. Wade. Abortion was illegal. So these doctors and researchers had to be sure that they were using a compound that would work if they're going to ask volunteers to participate mm -hmm. in a study, because they, they couldn't fix it for them if they got pregnant. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and then the, the question was, where do you do this? And there were sites all over the world, and also within the U.S., uh, there were a lot of places. For example, my father was testing the pill in Los Angeles uh, with his own patients. Um, the big trials were in Puerto Rico, and uh, there have been a lot of criticism of those trials, but uh, I think that most of the scholars that have looked at that now, including the feminist scholars that I've read, who looked very, very closely at these studies, um, they point out that, you know, these, these were not racist doctors who ran off to Puerto Rico to use, you know, Puerto Rican women as, as guinea pigs. The reason they went to Puerto Rico was, first of all, that was already a very um, well-established network of uh, contraceptive clinics available. Secondly, the only available method of contraception really uh, in Puerto Rico at the time was sterilization. And the, and the Puerto Rican women, poor, many of them in overcrowded situations, desperately wanted contraception, they wanted a reversible and effective form of contraception. And at the time, all that was available to them in Puerto Rico uh, was surgery, mm -hmm. and it would be permanent. Mm -hmm. So when the, the developers of the pill uh, began clinical trials there, women were lining up for, for these trials uh, to the point where they had to have waiting lists. Mm -hmm. the, they were just rushing to take part in this because they were so eager uh, to have some form of birth control that was not surgical, that was not permanent. Mm -hmm. um, so there was, um, yeah, I mean, you know, these things are always complicated because you're testing a, a medication that's powerful and you don't know what its effects are. On the other hand, 
um, women were very eager to do this in Puerto Rico because their options were very limited at the time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, the pill is about to come out. Let's talk a little bit about the expectations of the people who both supported the work, uh, that being uh, Sanger and McCormick and the people that did the work, uh, Pincus and Rock. What did they think the pill was going to do? What were their expectations and hopes for it? Well, that's a great question, and it fascinated me to look at this because Sanger and McCormick were very clear. This is about women taking control of their own reproductive capacities and their own lives. But on the other hand, most of the scientists and doctors um, at the time and most of the, I guess you could say, scientific and medical progressive community had very big global issues in mind. They were not so much interested in the, the uh, abilities of individual women to um, take control of their lives. What they were really interested in were issues like world population and family planning. And, um, you know, they, they had these very uh, idealistic hopes that the pill would bring down the rate of population growth and solve the population problem, that it would uh, resolve po poverty and put an end to, um, you know, to poverty because people could control the number of children they had. Uh, they thought that it would create happy marriages because men and women uh, would not be afraid to have sex be uh, for fear of having a, a child that they couldn't afford uh, to raise. And so they would be much more relaxed and enjoy their sex lives more, and so there'd be happier families, lower divorce rate. Um, they also thought that uh, even though most of these, these um, uh, advocates of the pill were not um, at all in favor of unleashing unmarried sex, um, they did believe that uh, the pill could be used by, by young people who were not married, young women who were not married, uh, if they were going to engage in sex, at least this would prevent uh, unwanted pregnancy. So they also thought that the pill could put an end to unwanted and particularly unwed pregnancy. Well, we know that the pill did none of that. The pill did not. <laughs> the pill did not bring bring down the world population. The, the pill did not bring down the divorce rate. Uh, the pill did not bring down the rate of um, un, unwed pregnancy. Um, but what it did was what really Sanger and McCormick had hoped it would do, uh, which is it empowered women to take advantage of new opportunities that were opening up at the time. Um, that, um, you know, it was the two things coming together, the feminist movement and the arrival of the pill, uh, that made the pill truly meaningful in women's lives. But just to say, if, um, you know, the feminist movement comes along and starts opening doors for women in public life, in education, in professions, in careers, and the pill really allowed women to walk through those newly opened doors. If there had been no opportunities out there, and really the only thing available to women would be wives and mothers or, you know, kind of the dead-end kinds of jobs that were mostly available to women at the time, um, it would have still been important. It would have been uh, um, an important contraceptive development, but it wouldn't have been earth-shaking. It wouldn't have been dramatic in terms of changing women's lives and prospects for what they could do with their lives. Uh, but the fact that it came along when there were new opportunities coming available, that's what made it truly dramatic and revolutionary. You know, at the time, we're, we're talking about, it wasn't that long ago, but this was a time when 
um, graduate and professional programs would have a quota on whether or not women could, you know, on the number of women who could mm -hmm. get into law schools or medical schools. In some places, they were prohibited altogether. Um, if you were a woman and you applied for a job or a Ph.D. program, you might be told, well, you know, we really don't take women because, you know, women just get married and get pregnant, and then they just drop out. And that wasn't altogether untrue. Because uh, if women were at the mercy of less effective forms of contraception um, and didn't have control over it completely, then it, it was often the case that uh, having a baby could really um, determine uh, and, and prevent them from, from following their aspirations and dreams. Mm -hmm. So... Um, so all of that really changed at once, and, and the pill was, was very important in that, in that development, in that transformation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One of the interesting things that I think was not predicted at the time was the, and something that comes out very clearly in your book and is also consistent with my experience with the pill, so to say, is the real ambivalence of women toward it. They didn't flock to it. I mean, they did. a lot of them used it, but even today they, they see it with a little bit of skepticism, and it, they don't see it as a panacea. It's a tool. It's it's uh, and you know there's even a history of sort of a you, you mentioned our bodies ourselves, which is something you know in my generation everybody was required to read and uh, that they you know that the the, uh, the the women's health collective there in Boston you know even they changed their opinion about it somewhat over time. Right. Yeah. Yes. Um, the interesting thing, first of all, there is that ambivalence. On the other hand. Um, millions of women in, in the U.S. and around the world uh, take the pill and have done so for uh, for decades. Eighty percent of all American women of childbearing age uh, have taken the pill at one time or another. It is still the most popular form of birth control for women under the age of 35. Um, actually, sterilization is more popular for women over the age of 35. Mm. Um, but, uh, but the pill is very popular. Um, and depending on who you talk to, some will say, you know, it's the most important thing in my life. I can't imagine life without it. Others will say, you know, um, I don't like it. I wouldn't use it. Um, too many side effects. Um, but what I found in, in an Internet survey that I did was that from the few hundred people who wrote to me, there were those who loved it. There were those who hated it. There were those that had mixed feelings about it. But what they all said over and over again is that the pill should be available and accessible and affordable to anyone who wants it. Mm -hmm. And many of them were very angry that even today, 50 years later, even though it's legal in all states now, uh, in many places women couldn't get it. Either the subsidies have been um, eliminated from college campuses so they couldn't afford it anymore, or conscience clauses made it possible for healthcare providers and pharmacists to say, you know, I, I don't believe in this. You shouldn't, you shouldn't have it, and I'm not going to give it to you. Um, or, you know, there were uh, places where women felt harassed, for example, if they would go in and ask for emergency contraception. Uh, a lot of the women were very angry about abstinence-only education, saying that it prevented young women and men from getting the information they needed to make their own informed decisions about uh, op options that were legal and, and available to them. Mm -hmm. So um, 
even 50 years down the road, there are still um, political realities, public policy debates, um, moral objections that get in the way uh, of uh, women having full reproductive freedom. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Another thing that comes out in your book that I, I think that I was interested in is that uh, if people thought that the pill was going to promote promiscuity, but it really didn't. No, it really didn't. You know, um, first of all, the pill was difficult for single women to get. Some of them were able to get it at the time, but um, many were not. Uh, and secondly, it, it was, sure, women were afraid of getting pregnant. Single women were very much afraid of that. But there were other cultural taboos besides pregnancy that prevented uh, young women from engaging in sex. Yeah. There was a very powerful double standard. Um, there were strong taboos that would label a woman as immoral or, um, um, you know, worse even mm -hmm. for engaging in sex when they weren't married. And no technology coming along is going to change deeply held values like that. Those ideas changed very gradually starting before, long before the pill was, um, was ever approved, and continuing for um, many years after the approval of the pill, we don't suddenly see a big change right in 1960 when the pill came on the market. Uh, there's really no evidence uh, that it made much of a difference. And oddly enough, we don't even have the data. We know how many married women took the pill, but we don't know how many unmarried women took the pill. There were no studies until 1972. We have lots of data. It's interesting. There are hundreds of studies of sexual behavior among unmarried men and women, and none of those studies ask them about the contraceptive use. Hmm. None until 1972. Hmm. That's interesting. So uh, that tells you something yeah, right there. Does. Yeah, it does. Uh, we're we're almost out of time, but I want to ask this because you spent some time on it in the book, and I found I found it really very interesting because uh, uh, I I learned something new, and I always like to do that from books. Uh, a, a male pill. It, yes. it, 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 we don't have one, and you have you have some interesting uh, you have an interesting story to tell about that. Well, there's been research going on ever since the 1950s. When when there was research going on for a pill for women, there was also research uh, on a pill for men. Uh, but what happened then, and what has happened consistently, is uh, that there's problems with a pill for men because most of the products that were tested had side effects that affected men's um, sexual performance in a negative way. So, you know, a, a compound like Viagra comes along and it, it gets approval in a nanosecond, even though the side effects can be very severe. In fact, people can die from Viagra. Uh, but, you know, there was a market out there for it. Well, the question is, what side effects are men going to be willing to tolerate for a pill that prevents pregnancy? And uh, even though studies show that men say they would be willing to take a pill if the side effects were acceptable, um, the question of developing uh, a compound with acceptable side effects and something that pharmaceutical companies would believe would generate a market strong enough to, um, to make it worth their while to, to invest in all the money it takes for research and development that just hasn't happened yet. Nonetheless, as 50 years ago, people were saying there's a male pill right around the corner. They're still saying it today. There's yeah. still research going on, and who knows? 
you know, one of these days we might get one. Right. Uh, but again, one of the, one of the things, I know quite a bit, I did study biology in college, but uh, one of the things I learned was is that if uh, I were to take my wife's birth control pills right now, that I would start, um, uh, I would become uh, temporarily infertile. Is yeah. that right? That's right, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You, you might also become temporarily impotent. Yeah, impotent, and my <laughs> testicles would get much smaller than they are. Yeah. All of the above. Yeah, that could yeah, be, that's not so not... good. But I was, I was surprised. I mean, in a sense, there already is a male pill. It's the female pill. It just has these nasty side effects. I don't know if they're nasty, but they're, they're certainly side effects. So. Right, and, you know, it's also true that for some women, the birth control pill does suppress libido. Not for all women, but it does for some women. Um, but nonetheless, women um, on the pill are, are still able to engage in sexual intercourse. For men, it's a little different. So there's a problem there. Yeah, let me ask you a, a kind of medical question that I never really understood. So the pill, this this uh, this combination of I guess it's progesterone and, and estro- estrogen, uh, it it um, it inhibits uh, it, it inhibits um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, ovulation. Ovulation. Yes. Uh, so, uh, but, but, but I remember my mother taking it when I was quite a bit younger, and it had this gap every month so my mother could have her period. Uh, what, why is there that gap? I mean, you never have to have, as you say, as some of the people yeah. say in the book, they never have to have their period again. I mean, is there any... Right, and they, and they don't, really. Is, there, um, is, it, is it medically indicated that you should have your period once a month? No, it's a very strange thing. I don't um, get it. I, yeah, I don't, because I was talking to my wife about it. More psychological, I think, than anything else. I think uh, that the early developers of the pill... Uh, believe that women um, would believe that, that there was something wrong with them if they didn't um, menstruate or have a fake. It's really not a real menstruation. It's a fake menstruation. Yeah, yeah no, that's it. Yeah, that. yeah, and there's actually pills out now that um, that you just take all the time. Uh, and, um, yeah. and, and, and also women sometimes take the pill without the five-day break because they understand that it's a fake menstruation anyway, and they just keep on the pill so that they don't bleed you yeah, know my, i think yeah I, I hope i'm not speaking out of school here but my wife figured that out she's most a very smart women lady figure you know? it out. Yeah. Yeah. most <laughs> women figure it out that yeah. it's, um you know there's no health reason or any yeah. uh, any other reason it's it's not a real period so um it's you know it's just one of these interesting things about uh, the marketing of, of yeah um, no, I, that, that, I, I find that really fascinating actually yeah. it's it's um yeah it, and it all has to do with marketing it's, right. it's really, it really does. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of a story about a guy who uh, was a marketing genius, people say he was, because uh, in the original – I don't know if this is true or not because it was told to me by somebody, so it's just hearsay. But in the original um, sort of Betty Crocker uh, cake mixes, they had dried eggs in them. And this guy mm-hmm. said, no, no, we can't do that. We have to take the dried eggs out. So we'll have to uh, allow people to add the eggs to the cake mix, and that will give them uh, this kind of notion that they're actually making a cake themselves. <laughs> and, this, and this turned out to be really a great boon. People loved it. And, you know, it good. So it, but it's all about marketing. It wasn't about anything else. So, yeah. Yeah. so anyway, I really encourage people to go out and read this book. Uh, it has many, many virtues. It's very well written. It is short. I read a lot of long books, and I really like short books. That's not, to, not to, that's not to criticize anybody who writes long ones, but I like short ones. They're very good. Uh, it's very readable, and uh, um, you will learn a lot from it. So, uh, Elaine, thank you very much for being on the show. The, the book, again, is Elaine uh, – uh, the author is Elaine Tyler May, and the, the book is America and the Pill, uh, A History uh, of Promise, Peril, and Liberation. Uh, Elaine, uh, we usually close this show with uh, uh, the following question, and I hope that you can answer it, and that is, uh, what are you working on now? What's your next project? Well, um, I'm not absolutely sure. I'm taking a little time to think about some things, but I'm I'm very interested in uh, American security culture, uh, both personal security and national security, and how those two issues intersect. 
Uh, so I've done a little work in that area, and I'm trying to decide if uh, I'm at the end of a project or at the beginning of a project. <laughs> with it. I know just what you mean. Yeah, I know. Just, well, good luck with all that. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, again, and thank you very much for being on the show. I really enjoyed talking to you today. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Elaine Tyler May about her new book, America and the Pill, A History of Promise, Peril, and Liberation. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.